state houses, threatening the lives of government officials, and invading the national capital itself on January 6th. The main gun lobby is the National Rifle Association, the NRA. It resists common-sense reforms. No matter the tragic occasion, the NRA recites its slogan, Guns don't kill people, people kill people. The NRA denounces calls for reasonable gun control as attacks on freedom and liberty. The organization's actual history is hidden not only from the general public, but even from its own members. To talk about the NRA is Frank Smythe. He's an independent journalist whose articles have appeared in The Washington Post and The Progressive. He's the author of The NRA, The Unauthorized History. He spoke on February 14th at an online event moderated by Norm Stockwell of the Progressive Magazine. And now, Frank Smythe. Most of you know of the Parkland, Florida, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting that resulted in 17 fatalities, I believe, and a number more injured. And it also led to students from Parkland High School, surviving students, taking a lead to energize the gun reform movement. And they've accomplished a lot. We're going to talk about that, though I still think there are a number of hurdles ahead in terms of uh, implementing meaningful and lasting gun reform, gun control in the United States. Biden's gun plan today that he's had in the works now uh, since he was a candidate, he's now announced he's going to attempt to put it into, uh, turn these uh, proposals into law. Number one, they would eliminate or reduce the uh, the, the ruling uh, before that was passed or the law that was passed under the Burson administration, W, that protected gun manufacturers from lawsuits for the misuse of their weapons in mass shootings. Biden is seeking to uh, to reestablish legal liability for gun manufacturers, number one. And for those of you in favor of gun reform, that's an, it would be an important step if it could be achieved. Number two, he wants to implement robust and universal background checks, which failed in 2013 after the Parkland, I have to excuse me, after the Newtown, Connecticut, Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. Uh, involving largely second-grade classrooms and uh, uh, young people and their teachers. Uh, so that, and that, I think, has the best chance of success in what Biden is proposing. Number three, Biden would uh, outban high-capacity magazines, magazines that would carry more than 10 rounds of ammunition. And four, today he said uh, that he would uh, impose an assault weapons ban. Now, all these measures would, if they were all come to pass, would impose the toughest gun laws in our nation's history. And that is significant, although I think we're still a long way off from seeing that come to fruition for those of you that would wish to see that. Back in 1994, Congress and the Clinton administration passed a law which was a 10-year temporary assault weapons ban. And it failed in the end, largely because the, they had defined assault weapons that would be banned based on their cosmetic features, whether they had a pistol grip in front or whether they had a flash suppressor, things that really don't matter in terms of the semi-automatic capability of what defines assault weapon, which is being semi-automatic and having the capacity to have more than 10 rounds of ammunition, at least according to the trade press. Um, Biden's gun plan includes gun registration. And everyone in favor of gun reform needs to realize this is a red line for the gun rights movement. 
And I think we're going to see over the next coming days uh, a movement and a reaction to Biden's gun plan. And I think it has the potential to unite people from Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz all the way over to Mitch McConnell and possibly even depending on the measures under consideration, even people like Mitt Romney. And I think that's something that uh, needs to be taken into account. Because the fact of the matter is today, both the movement for gun reform and the movement for, for gun rights are stronger than ever. Each side is stronger than ever, which is almost hard to believe, but it sets the stage for an epic battle, which is going to take a very long time before it is done. Now, the gun reform movement has contributed to the 81 million uh, record uh, voter turnout for Biden-Harris, but the gun movement, the gun rights movement, contributed to turning out 74 million voters, another record, less than Biden-Harris, but more than Obama-Biden in previous elections. And another indicator of the gun movement's strength today is the fact that over the past 11 months, since the start of the pandemic, we have seen nearly uh, record gun sales nearly every month since last March. Gun sales fueled by the pandemic, gun sales fueled by the protest against the health measures designed to curb the pandemic, gun sales fueled by the Black Lives Matter protests spiking the week after the death in police custody of George Floyd, and gun sales fueled by the Capitol, January 6th Capitol takeover, right? Uh, on top of that, there is now a nationwide shortage of ammunition, something we've never seen in this nation war, because so many people have been buying so much ammunition that vendors have been unable to keep up with demand, which uh, is really quite phenomenal. We also see 23 attorney generals from 23 red states signed on to an amicus brief supporting the NRA's lawsuit along with a local partner against New York State challenging New York State's restrictions on, on the inability for most citizens to carry concealed handguns. And that also is a trend which demonstrates the strength of this movement and the depth and breadth it has today in the Republican Party. So what's happened over the past four years is the NRA has not moved as much as the Republican Party has moved to it. And instead of being seen on the margins of the Republican Party, still close to the mainstream, but a little bit to the margins, now uh, the NRA is dead set within the middle planks of the Republican Party. And I think that poses a tremendous challenge for any people uh, in or out of the administration who are interested in pursuing uh, gun reform. And I also think that Biden's plan to heal the nation uh, is going to conflict with his uh, plans to implement gun control. And that's something that we're going to see play out over the coming years. Now, um, this all happens as the NRA itself is in trouble, more trouble than ever before. Last year, after the attorney general lawsuit was filed, I did not think that Leticia James, the New York attorney general, would be able to achieve to dissolve the NRA because the NRA had so many legitimate activities supporting the shooting sports, hunting, competitive shooting around the country, that that would be a difficult thing to get a court to accept. But now I think it's clear that the NRA is moving in the direction of, of dissolving itself. It is not going to survive. It is not going to remain intact uh, from the New York Attorney General investigation into alleged embezzlement. And I'm also going to argue and, and demonstrate uh, to you that the roots of this embezzlement scandal go back uh, nearly 44 years. Now, how did we get to where we are today? 
where the gun reform movement is stronger than ever and gun control is finally on the table for the first time, I would argue, uh, in over 50 years since the days of President Johnson. The answer lies in the buried history of the NRA and the buried history of gun control that is intertwined with the NRA and has been for a long time. Because the NRA has shaped the conversation in this country so much that the points of reference that we have when we think about gun control, it's like we're wearing blinders and we don't see everything that's out there and we don't realize we have blinders on. And I'm going to show you that. And if you wish, you can look at this talk as an exhumation of the NRA's buried past, as well as aspects of American and world history that they've also tried to bury. And we'll see what the disinterment uh, digs up. I'm also going to lay out for you some of the NRA's lies, some of the NRA's big lies, which are extremely important and I think is one of the areas where they are vulnerable. Big lie number one, even a little gun control can precipitate a slide to disarmament and then all the way to genocide. In other words, you can't have a little gun control without giving up all your guns and ultimately all your freedom. This has no basis in fact, and I'm going to dissect it for you. But uh, keep in mind, it's a very strong belief out there. And so far, the gun reform movement, neither the Parkland students nor the surviving Newtown parents nor the Aurora parents uh, nor others in the or Shannon Watts and others. who Shannon Watts is very good and she engages in a number of issues which I think advance the gun reform agenda. But so far, these lies have gone unchallenged. And Biden himself has never addressed his gun plan until finally when he put some meat on the bone. And the essence of the gun plan, the part that is most objectionable to the gun rights crowd is gun registration. And that is an issue that nobody has addressed. Biden has never addressed it in his career. As far as I know, the administration hasn't addressed it. But I think this is going to become a flashpoint in the days and weeks and months uh, and probably years to come. Now, the NRA has two Achilles heels, like the metaphor would suggest. We all have two Achilles heels. One of them is their embezzlement scandal. And the one thing to keep in mind is this does not come from the New York attorney general out of the blue. The embezzlement scandal began with Oliver North when he was he was brought in to be president of the NRA at the NRA annual meeting in Dallas in 2018. I was there and I was also at the board meeting and Oliver North was brought in because they needed a strong voice to stand up to the Parkland students, which really uh, shook up the NRA. They were concerned about. Uh, the energy that was coming from the Parkland students for gun reform. But Oliver North started looking at the books of the NRA and he started to find irregularities and he started to call them out. And but with, by 2019, at the next annual meeting, the scandal erupted in the press in the Wall Street Journal, where Oliver North, backed by people like Ted Nugent, not the people you might expect to be whistleblowers, accusing LaPierre and others of massive embezzlement along with complicity, as it turns out, according to the New York Attorney General of the NRA board. A year later, in 2020, the New York Attorney General filed a lawsuit against the NRA, seeking to dissolve it over evidence of of massive embezzlement. And what was missed in the stories that came out is that dissonant number one is cited for, uh, for documents in that New York Attorney General lawsuit, and that is identified as the NRA president at the time, Oliver North, along with other unnamed dissident board members. The NRA then announced this year that they are defiling bankruptcy and moving to Texas. But three things happened that throw that into doubt and are going to make their NRA's plans for uh, an easy exit out of New York, escaping accountability in New York, 
I think, all but impossible now. Number one, a Kansas district judge who was an NR, ex-NRA board member filed uh, in court, in, in NR, the, the same court where the NRA filed for bankruptcy, asking for an independent examiner to examine LaPierre's finances. And he also said that uh, LaPierre went and filed for bankruptcy without the approval of the NRA's own board of directors in violation of its bylaws, which doesn't sound like much, but it's a, it's a, it poses a huge problem for the NRA. The NRA's former PR partner, uh, Ackerman McQueen, also filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit, Ackerman McQueen being the NRA's largest unsecured debtor, to dismiss the lawsuit because they feel they're just trying to get out of the debts that they're owed. And the New York Attorney General filed a similar suit uh, just a day or two ago, uh, or similar motion to dismiss that uh, bankruptcy proceeding. But the NRA's other Achilles heel lies in lies in the lies, the tall tales, the fairy tales, the fabulous inventions that the NRA has told about itself, as well as about American and world history. Big lie number two for the NRA, which is now its mantra on the NRA website and in NRA publications, and that they only really rolled out in writing explicitly in 2013 after the second inauguration of the first black president in the United States, Barack Obama. It was 2013 that the NRA started to put in writing and then, and then adopt as its new slogan that the NRA is the oldest civil rights organization in the nation and that the NRA was founded to support the Second Amendment, right? Neither of these claims are true whatsoever. And then in 2018, five years later, people associated with the NRA and NRA officials themselves started to put meat on the bone of that or, this new origin story for the NRA, which is what it was. And they started to claim Candace Owens, for instance, said on Fox News that as a black American woman, she knows that the NRA was founded in support of the Second Amendment and as a civil rights group. And she claimed that the early NRA helped arm freed slaves during Reconstruction after the Civil War to help secure their Second Amendment rights. Later that year, Alan West, an NRA board director, a Christian conservative commentator, and also now the the chair of the Texas GOP, who made We Are the Storm, the QAnon phrase, the new slogan of the Texas GOP. Um, Alan West also claimed and wrote, as an American black man, I have thought about the NRA's history and I have reflected on it, he said. And then he claimed, too, like Candace Owens, that the early NRA helped stood with freed slaves to help secure their Second Amendment rights. And he repeated this at the NRA annual meeting in 2019 in Indianapolis, the last NRA NRA meeting held since the start of the pandemic. I was there as well. Now, none of this is true. Not a word of this is true. And this is where one place where the NRA is very vulnerable. Because the NRA was founded by two men in New York City, both living in Brooklyn, a man named William Conant Church and George Wood Wingate. William Conant Church was a man who was the the most influential military writer of his age. He had served as a a journalist during the early years of the war, reported for the New York Times. The other NRA co-founder was a man named George Wood Wingate, who had served in the Civil War during the Battle of Gettysburg, who was a master uh, rifleman as well as a master rifle trainer. They were following events in Europe. And remember, this is during Reconstruction, but it's also on the eve of the Gilded Age. And the United States had been transformed and was becoming a great power 
uh, are be- and emerging uh, on the world stage. And they expected the United States to be drawn into future wars involving European powers. And they had watched as the Kingdom of Prussia, a smaller empire, had defeated first the, king- the, the Empire of Austria and then the Empire of France. In both cases, Austria and France were expected to win, especially France, and the Prussians won. And what Wingate and Church concluded, and the, and the evidence bears it out, is that the Prussians beat the Austrians and the French by having better rifles, rear-loading rifles, rifles that uh, you, you load from the back as opposed to the front like a, like a musket uh, would, that are also, were also more accurate and had more firepower, uh, more range than, uh, than the other muskets. But they also the Prussians also had very well-trained riflemen who were able to pick off sharpshooters, enemy, uh, enemy uh, combatants from beyond the range at which the enemy could fire back. And this alarmed Church and, and Wingate, who had already seen an appalling lack of marksmanship on both sides during the Civil War. So they formed the NRA in 1871 as a private initiative in order, in order to per- create a rifle practice group whose goal was nothing to do with the Second Amendment, but to raise the standard of riflery among the National Guard, first the New York National Guard, military, army, navy, or army soldiers and others, as well as abled mounted men to, you know, to better prepare the United States in case of a future expected war with European powers. Now, they, uh, they lobbied money and they lobbied uh, the State House in Albany and they secured funding from New York State, the same New York State that is now seeking through a lawsuit to dissolve the NRA in 1871, gave the NRA money in order to train New York National Guard uh, guardsmen. And, they, and the NRA used that money to build a range in Queens called the Creedmoor Range. Now, this is going to sound ironic for a group that claims to be founded to support the Second Amendment, but they modeled they took their name, the range design, the scoring system, and even the targets on the National Rifle Association of the United Kingdom, inaugurated 12 years before by Queen Victoria herself, Her Majesty's NRA. And the NRA beat the Irish on their own range in 1874. And then in 1877, they, they invited the British NRA to come over and compete against them. And they sent the Imperial team, the best riflemen from the British Isles, and the NRA won. 1877 was the last year of Reconstruction. And they spent the, their, their, all their efforts during this period were consumed by rifle competitions, uh, and, including international competitions. And now they have finally beat the British. They beat their own role models. Wingate set up the American NRA and the rifle system to be able to be as good, if not better, than the British. And now they beat the British. This is the early NRA's finest hour, a Victorian era triumph, and something you would think the modern NRA would want to celebrate. But no one in the NRA seems to know anything about this. No one in the modern NRA will say anything about this because it contradicts with their big lie that they were founded to support the Second Amendment. And this is everything that I'm telling you is in the book, but it's also all documented to original NRA documents dating back 150 years as well as since. Now, the NRA after World War II grew exponentially from less than 100,000 members in 1945 to up to a million uh, by 1968. And while before the NRA was dominant by competitive shooters, uh, since uh, World War II, it's been dominated by hunters. Uh, 
Now, the NRA lost its funding from Albany, but in 1903, it secured federal funding with the help of President Teddy Roosevelt. And that federal funding allowed the NRA to host rifle competitions and pistol competitions for the guard, military, and able-bodied men, as well as later police over the next 60 years, right up to the days of the Vietnam War. And they, uh, they ran those competitions through the 20th century at a range on Lake Erie in Ohio, which still exists, called Camp Perry. Now, a few things happened that are instrumental, I think, uh, for today in the 1920s. Number one, in 1925, the NRA had its first embezzlement scandal, where some executive officers were moving money around, and it seemed like there was, they, were, they were pocketing it for themselves. A man named Milton Record. Uh, he cleaned this up in 1925. He set up a system of checks and balances so no one could operate like these people had uh, without scrutiny. And he also established a system of financial transparency, and this is most important, and published the actual, not the sanitized, but the actual NRA annual reports in the, uh, the NRA's American Rifleman magazine, which these are leather-bound volumes of, of, uh, of the NRA going through the years. And I have, a, I think, one of the largest collections uh, that, that may exist. And they published these annual reports to make sure that everybody knew the NRA's finances, along with the system of checks and balances. And it lasted for 50 years or 52 uh, years until the 19th, what occurred in 1977, which I'm coming to. Now, something else happened in the 1920s. You had organized crime, Bonnie and Clyde, bank robbers, Al Capone, bootleggers. And this rise in organized crime led the NRA to apply a balancing test, something that would be an anathema to the current uh, modern leaders of the NRA. And the balancing test weighed the interest of gun owners against the interest of public safety and the need to keep to make it harder for arms to get into criminal hands. So the NRA leadership, including Milton Record, supported the National Firearms Act in 1934, which record in an NRA oral history when he was 92 in 1974 said was a sane, reasonable, and effective law. The oral history was buried, which is a problem, because NRA, uh, the NRA big lie number three is we never changed. We've always supported the Second Amendment. We've always uh, been defending gun rights. Not true. The NRA didn't raise gun rights at all until 19. 19- 22 in an editorial referencing a New York law still on the books, now being challenged by those attorney generals over concealed, uh, over restricting handgun, uh, the ability to carry handguns in New York state. And it also referenced the Bolshevik revolution, the communist revolution that had turned Russia into the Soviet Union. But that was 1922, 51 years after things began. The Second Amendment was not referenced by anyone in the NRA until 1952 as the second article in the Bill of Rights. And civil rights, which they claim they've been supporting since the beginning, was not referenced until it was referenced as civil liberties in 1968. So this is the third big lie. We've never changed. Not true at all. The change occurred in 1977 in something called the Cincinnati Revolt. This is something that NRA leaders will not talk about and will, will try not to acknowledge, even though they reference it in code themselves. And one NRA president even went to Moscow and gave a speech, which he referenced it quite clearly, perhaps not realizing that that speech would be uh, video recorded and then might end up to, to a Russian audience, might end up on YouTube as it was where Mother Jones found it. Now, what happened in the Cincinnati revolt? The NRA consolidated power. Everybody in the NRA had to, had to, had to, had to report to someone 
who was there to make sure that everyone towed the political line, including the magazines, if not especially the magazines. Number two, they ended the practice of financial transparency, meaning that the annual reports disappeared from the magazines. The 76 was the last year they were published. It didn't appear in 77, and they have not appeared since, at least not anything that's real and actually reflects real NRA finances. Uh, they also ended that system of checks and balances, too, which leads directly, as I wrote in the New York Daily News, to the embezzlement scandal that, we're, that they're dealing with today. But third and most importantly, the 77 Cincinnati revolt sent the NRA on a new course, uh, what, what they call an unyielding course or an absolutist course, a course that prioritized everything having to do with gun rights. And just to give you a sense, in the 1960s and early 1970s, the NRA was as green as Sierra Club, uh, supporting taking polar bears off their trophy list, which you can win an award for game, big game trophies, decades before they were in danger. Supporting wildlife conservation efforts in Kenya, in, uh, in Texas, along the Mexican border, uh, looking at things like the Mexican jaguar, um, running editorials. Uh, celebrating Earth Day, the first anniversary of Earth Day in 1971, running editorials saying that man-made pollution posed a threat to wildlife and human life, sounding as green as Sierra Club, if not their more radical offshoot, Friends of the Earth, and even running an editorial suggesting a tax on ammunition, which you would never hear today, in order to support wildlife conservation. But the other thing the NRA did is they co-opted over a century of competitive shooting and hunting. All the gun clubs throughout the country that had been built up over the past 160 years were co-opted into the NRA's new agenda. Uh, and I would argue today that of the 74 million people that voted for Trump, many, if not most of them, support the NRA's gun rights agenda. And it seems that nearly all of the Republican Party elected officials today, on the national level as well as on the state level, uh, support the NRA's uh, gun, gun rights agenda. And this is a problem. The new leader of the NRA was a man named Harlan Carter. But he was somebody who, when he was 17, got into a dispute near his home where some boys had been, accu had been accused of, they were loitering near the home and the mother, uh, their, the family car had been stolen three weeks before, and Carter's mother thought maybe these boys are responsible. So he got a shotgun and went after the boys and challenged them and said, you have to come back to talk to my mother. They refused. One of them pulled a knife out to fight, to fight Carter, and the boys died. And this is all according to court testimony in 1931 when it occurred in the Laredo Times, reported in the Laredo Times in Laredo, Texas, where Carter uh, was the son of a Border Patrol officer. He himself would later become a Border Patrol chief. He was uh, convicted, sentenced to jail, and later had that conviction overturned on appeal. But Carter had managed to keep uh, uh, all that quiet for 50 years by changing his name from Harlan, that he was born, to Harlan, well, the second vowel from an A to an O, to keep it secret for 50 years. So he's somebody who definitely epitomizes the gun rights agenda. And you could say, well, what does that mean? Well, he's actually not only the leader of the Cincinnati Revolt, he's the father of the modern NRA. And we know that because if you go into NRA headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, you will see the museum there is all about firearms, mainly in, in the U.S. American society, but also uh, elsewhere, showing the power and the determining factors, how important guns are and rifles and other weapons have been, firearms have been 
to, uh, to human destiny, I think would be one way to put it. Uh, there are no leaders of the NRA acknowledged at all in that museum or on display with the exception of a five-foot pedestal with a giant bronze bust on top of Carter's head and shoulders. He is the only NRA leader over five generations so honored and so revered. And in 2019, in the fall, when Wayne LaPierre, the current CEO of the NRA, came under fire from his own board in Oliver North for embezzlement charges, he wrote to members, I learned from great leaders such as Harlan B. Carter, brandishing his own credentials to this man, the father of the modern NRA, that they really don't want anyone to know about uh, except their own members who already understand who he is. Now, Wayne LaPierre, uh, his claim to fame within the organization is by 1986. He led the effort to roll back the uh, formal law, the Gun Control Act of 1968, which had radicalized the hardliners in the NRA, leading them to launch this assault and take over the organization in 1977. And that Firearms Owner Protection Act rolled back part of that gun control law of 1968. It weakened some of the provisions of the prior 1934 law. Uh, it's really the most important gun law passed uh, since the 1968 law. Uh, and what we've had since has been uh, the assault weapons ban that came and went and background checks that still are problematic, although Biden now purports uh, and aspires, as he says, to uh, to to make them more robust. The NRA also expanded concealed carry. In the early 80s, very few states had concealed carry where you could carry a weapon uh, uh, hidden on you if you're a resident. Now most states have those laws. You're listening to Frank Smythe, the NRA Unmasked. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For CDs of this program, just give us a call at one 800 444 1977. We're offering free of charge MP3s, PDFs, and printed transcripts of this program. Call us at 1 800 444 1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. Now, what's the NRA secret, right? I remember the CNN town hall after the Parkland shooting back in 2018, and one of the students asked, uh, Marco, Senator Rubio, you know, are you willing to give up NRA mem- money? The NRA, the money that the NRA gives to pro-gun candidates is not that important. And it is not as important as the money that the NRA devotes to attack ads. Before with front groups, now due to Citizens United, they don't have to even bother hiding it. But attack ads attacking uh, gun control candidates. And in the past, they've they've been quite successful at that. Now, with the strength of the gun reform movement, it seems like it's going to be harder. The gun industry is also very important. And I remember having this discussion with Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC after the Newtown shooting. And a lot of people think, well, the NRA is just an extension of the gun industry. Not true. The NRA and the gun industry have been joined at the hip since before they, the NRA was founded. Because Church, when he started running uh, Wingate's rifle manual, the back pages were full of gun ads. It's a model they've continued since. But the gun industry supports the NRA, but it does not control the NRA, and it's not the secret of the NRA's strength. The secret of the NRA's strength is the ideology. In 2018, after the weekend, uh, that August weekend of first the El Paso and Dayton shootings, they call it the slippery slope, and all of a sudden everything is taken away, right? Meaning that even a little gun control like background checks 
precipitates a slide to disarmament, disarmament, precipitates a slide to the Holocaust. And none of this is true, right? This is a complete canard, not true at all. The linchpin is they claim that the Nazis use prior gun control, gun registration lists to then come and seize weapons from the Jews and facilitating their ability to then carry out the Holocaust. That is simply not credible. So this is simply another canard. But the issue is, even as the NRA is is fading into the sunset, right, and perhaps on its last legs, and I think it will resurface in some other form, but it's really it's really on its out as we know it. Even as they, as they do that, don't take too much comfort in that if you're in favor of gun reform, because the ideology they put out will endure. Because the ideology has convinced a great many of those 74 million Trump supporters who voted for him, along with I think most, if not nearly all of the leadership of the the GOP, that gun control like Biden is proposing now poses an existential threat to their freedom and their very lives and not just their ability to keep their weapons. This is the one issue that could unite uh, conservatives from the moderates, the gamers, as Timothy Snyder called Mitch McConnell, willing to cheat uh, but not steal the system to the people willing to outright steal it like the representatives who are QAnon supporters. And I think it poses a tremendous amount of potential opposition to Biden's gun plans and plans for gun reform. And I think if the gun reform movement wants to achieve their goals in my lifetime, let's say, or in in the coming years, that these myths, these big lies by the NRA need to be challenged. And one thing we've learned from recent events is that if you start to challenge extremism, extremism has its limits. You see people flocking out of the, of the GOP now, it seems. And I think, um, I think the gun reform movement, if they're going to get somewhere, need to start challenging these myths, these lies, these fabulous tales told by the NRA. So with that, Norm, I'm going to turn it back to you and, uh, and we'll continue. Well, Frank, thank you so very much. With that, I'd like to open it up to questions. So a question from a listener here, uh, for gun reform purposes, would you say it's important to do more groundwork challenging the gun rights ideology before proposing certain reforms like gun registration? Yes, absolutely. That's the main point. You know, the, the gun registration to them, that if you have gun registration, that the Nazis or the socialists are going to come in the night, kick down the door, take away your guns, take your family to concentration camps and kill all of you. Right. And you think, well, who would believe that? Well, certainly the people that took over the Capitol on January 6th would. This needs to be challenged now, because if not, the opposition has the potential to be incredibly disruptive. Constitutional sheriffs will refuse to comply. Attorney generals and governors may refuse to comply with any federal any any attempts to impose a federal or national gun control law. So you've got it. You've got to challenge that before you're going to be successful successful in implementing that. That is my point, and thank you for asking that. Um, another listener is asking about connections between the NRA and the January 6th Capitol insurrection. You know, there's been some stories about that. The NRA, you have to remember, is a very cautious organization, right? I would argue the modern NRA is a very cynical organization as well, but they're cautious. They didn't get involved in the tea parties. They weren't sure which way that was going to go. They doubled down and went in 100% or maybe 200% with Donald Trump. We know that. Uh, but they And they support the right to carry weapons and the right to armed insurrection. And there's bits and pieces where people, uh, where that's been said and was recently uh, brought out by a number of 
Nick Huffington Post and some others. And that's good. And that's all true. But the NRA kept its distance from this because this went beyond. They knew this was going to blow up. They're smart enough to realize they didn't want to have their fingerprints on it, even though they're the ones that have put out the ideology, the ideology of the slippery slope and the canard about the Holocaust, which is part of what's really driving this along with support of Trump. They are part of that movement. They set the foundation for that. Uh, And I think they also, it could be argued, set the foundation for the rise of Trump from their activities over the year, demonizing anyone in favor of gun control. But but they didn't play any direct role that I'm aware of, and I don't think they would uh, in what occurred. Although Alan West, the Texas GOP chair and NRA board member, wrote something which was very elliptical about the subject. But he basically said, that's why we were there. He wasn't there. But he's identifying that we were there. So they so in that sense, he supported it. And he's even more radical overtly than other members of the uh, of the leadership in the NRA. So a couple of people are asking about effective ways to change people's minds about some of these issues. The fact that, um, you know, the uh, the scare tactics that are being used to get people to support the NRA. How do you counter that with information? Well, you know, I think you've seen what the Lincoln Group has done, right? Uh, the Lincoln Project, right? Uh, in terms of the last election, putting out ads that have really, uh, I think, damaged, uh, called President Trump out for the inaccurate and uh, and extremist things that he has said. And I think something similar could be done for the NRA to call them out, especially the fact that. What kind of organization has to lie about the origin of their own organization to achieve their modern political ends? If that isn't a giant vulnerability, I don't know what is. And there are people, like I said, Shannon Watts is very much engaged in the political process and quite effective. But the Parkland students, uh, you know, they I watched Us Kids by Kim Snyder, who's also a friend of mine, and a great film that captures the spirit of what they're trying to do. And there's a great scene where... David Hogg and others are engaged in conversation with gun owners and they actually come to like each other. But the conversation never advances. They say, David Hogg says, well, we don't want to take your guns. And that was enough. But nobody gets down to what actually do you want to do and what would be permissible. So I think this is right to be challenging them, especially when the NRA is spending now all of its money and most of its time defending itself on three fronts. Right. In in court in Dallas and court again against its own PR partner and in court in New York. So this would be a good time to uh, to to challenge them on their lies. You talk in the book about two other histories of the NRA, both of which have also been kind of buried by the organization. Well, they don't want anybody to know how green they were, for instance, because that shows how much they've changed. They don't want anyone to know that they were a shooting club. Uh, basically the nation's largest gun association. And then overnight they, they continued with that shooting club, but turned it into uh, the base of the gun lobby. So it's that that they've buried and that they don't want anyone to know. One of our listeners asks about the moderate factions of the NRA and, and if there's a way to appeal to them and kind of drive a wedge between these uh, white supremacist elements that you mentioned earlier and the neo-Nazi elements and the uh, the more moderate members of the NRA. Um, you yourself, Frank, are a member of the NRA? <laughs> yes. But the notion that there are moderates in the NRA, I hear this from, from, uh, from lefties, right? 
uh, fellow progressives say that to me. Well, there must be moderates in the NRA. I've been to a lot of NRA meetings and I've been to gun shows. I've never seen any moderates at all. Right. The moderates are people who uh, who may who may be members of the NRA because they have benefits from being members. It may give them access to a gun club or access to the magazine. American Rifleman, American Hunter, America's First Freedom, that show a great deal of firearms. So there are benefits if you're part of the gun community, of which I am, uh, to, to being in the NRA. But the notion that moderates are going to take over the NRA, let me tell you right now, that will never happen. Because the NRA is run like a Politburo, as a former board member said. So they had a period where they had a grassroots democracy in, their, in the NRA, which produced the Cincinnati Revolt. It didn't last long, and then they consolidated power, and they set everything up so there were indirect elections. And you don't vote for people in your state. You vote for a slate of board candidates. And most of the ones who get on the board are uh, nominated by the nominating committee, which is controlled by the board. So to compare it to a, a Politburo is not hyperbolic. It's exactly its design to make sure there be no challenge to their power. Now, you people that were asked that question is thinking, well, there could be a challenge from moderates. That is not what they're worried about. They're worried about a challenge from people more extreme than they are, including white power people, right? That's what they're worried about. And they're worried about people coming in like Oliver North. They're going to start looking into their finances, even though they didn't expect him to do that. But the notion that you're going to have moderates in the NRA is not going to happen. But if you start challenging the NRA on their ideology, on the canards, the, the BS that they put out, then I think you might start seeing People leave the NRA, and then it's possible they could gravitate to a number of other groups that have been formed that so far are going nowhere, right, or really aren't getting getting much traction. Now, uh, we started off at the beginning. Uh, we had just gotten the news about President Biden's statement about background checks, about other uh, banning automatic weapons. And I wonder if you could just talk about what pressures the Biden administration is going to face from the NRA as it moves forward with an agenda of that sort? Oh, the NRA has already uh, put up on Instagram that they're going to fight for. The NRA is going to use this for fundraising. This is perfect for them. And it's going to take uh, deflect attention away from the fact that LaPierre, part of the charges are that he has, you know, racks of, of, of $20,000 Italian suits and uh, and a bunch of other you know things that he's in personal enrichment, including oh well, is his chief of staff and other former chief of staff and other members. So it's a good deflection for them. But they're not uh, they're not the ones that the Biden administration has to worry about. They have to worry about Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Mitch McConnell, right? Uh, I don't even want to say her name, but the the QAnon rep from Georgia, the QAnon rep from Colorado. These people are all going to now unite. And like I said, Mitt Romney from Utah is a pro-gun state. He might support universal background checks. Joe Manchin and Toomey, who supported background checks before, will support it again. They might pass. But this has the potential to reunite the Republican Party. The split we've seen between the pro-Trumpers and the anti-Trumpers just now with the impeachment trial, this has the, runs the risk without any exaggeration of reuniting that group. And there are people that are going to try to exploit this, this attempted gun control just to do that, which could become obstructionist and could make it harder for, uh, for everything else the Biden administration wants to do. On top of that, the, the, uh, the, the margin in the Senate is so thin, the filibuster is still in place. And so it's going to be very hard to get around that. And there's talk about repealing that, 
But even then, there's going to be tremendous resistance. So I really think, and, and I, it gives me no pleasure to say this, but I think gun control is going to have to wait, except for background checks. I'd be surprised if the Biden administration, at least over the next two years, manages to pass anymore. Now, if the midterm elections, if they could, if they can get uh, control of the, of the Senate up to 60 votes, that would change everything. But the other thing you have to remember is that the Roberts court has a new composition. Roberts is now among the minority to the right of a hardline conservative block without him. And uh, Amy Cohen, Justice uh, Cohen, is a strong gun rights uh, advocate, and so is Gorsuch. So everything that the Biden administration wishes to do would be challenged in court. And the Democrats, I do not have the votes to expand the court, as Schumer talked about back when the judicial appointments were made. We're in for a long road ahead, years years before we're going to actually see meaningful, lasting gun gun control in this country. One listener asks, I mean, the, the Second Amendment really is about organized militias, which are which are now uh, called the National Guard. And is there any way of, of amending or clarifying the Second Amendment? And I think the answer to that is comes in what you just said about the Supreme Court, that particularly with the new Trump appointees on the court, Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, that um, it was the Supreme Court that clarified the Second Amendment already to favor the NRA interpretation, correct? Yeah, but you know, the thing about the Supreme Court decision, the Scalia decision in Heller versus the District of Columbia, which established for the first time an individual right to, uh, to at least keep arms in the home for one's protection, that is a, his decision still left it open that the government that the government or diff, different levels of government, federal, state and others can prohibit weapons in certain areas like schools or hospitals or buildings that the government can has the power to regulate commerce of firearms. The Heller decision does not prohibit uh, future gun control. Everything that Biden can do can fit within the Heller decision. The problem is the new court may rule that it may be unconstitutional based on that decision and a, a new interpretation of that decision or based on another legal ruling. And I think that poses a greater threat. Scalia's decision itself, I don't think, is a barrier to future gun control. I think it's more that the court could find other reasons, uh, other legal reasons or other excuses, depending on your perspective, to, uh, to impede future gun control and rule it unconstitutional. And certainly that's why it's important to challenge the myths of, that the NRA is pulling out, because that would make it harder to listen to them when they're lying about American history, world history, and themselves uh, to be able to do that. And that's why I think this is going to be a long haul, and it's going to be in part an ideological battle, a battle about facts and history as opposed to extremism and inventions. Now, earlier in our talk, you mentioned gun shows. I was covering the Iowa caucuses, and uh, our photographer and I stumbled on a big gun show that was happening just just outside where the Iowa uh, caucuses were taking place, where 23 of the presidential candidates all spoke within two days. And at that gun show, you could buy just about anything. And so one of our listeners asked the question about gun show loopholes and can they be closed? Can Is that something where there could be legislation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That could be closed, right? And part of what uh, the plan, uh, according to the NRA, Biden's plan would end private transfers of weapons. This is a problem and a legitimate problem for a father who wants to 
give us give his his father's weapon, his father's hunting rifle, right? A Remington BDL Deluxe, for instance, to his son. And I think that's that's to be respected. You don't want to uh, belittle that, but you don't want private transfers of guns at, at, at gun shows. So that could be imposed. But the problem is the ATF, which is the federal agency, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and now explosives, in charge with enforcing national gun control laws, has been so weakened and so beaten by congressional attacks. The degree of federal enforcement to to enforce gun control has been limited by Congress itself. So all this would have to change. Right. Um, including, which is starting to happen, allowing the Centers for Disease Control to look at gun violence like a pandemic. Mm-hmm. All these things need to be done in concert. And the NRA has, has, on its own terms, been successful at keeping this all at bay, saying if you, if, you, if you yield on any one of them, the whole house of cards will collapse. And the rest of the society pays the price. And now I think there's potential to turn that around, but it's going to take a while. You mentioned the CDC, and of course, um, it's probably been a decade or more since Physicians for Social Responsibility took up uh, gun violence as a public health issue, and I know other groups have as well. What's the chance of something like that getting uh, getting more traction with the public in general? Well, I think if studies can come out, you can demonstrate the link between uh, gun ownership and guns in circulation and gun laws. And violence, you can you can go a long way. But here's the problem, and this is and this is another way to look at it. What the NRA has done, part of the blinders they put on, is that they are comfortable with largely the 1934 law. They don't want to admit it because it bans fully automatic weapons, and they don't want to admit that they're they're comfortable with that. But they're largely comfortable with that. They're largely comfortable with the way the United States regulates wholesale firearms commerce. Right? They don't have a big problem with that, and they've weakened some of the provisions. So firearms dealers are less likely have less penalties facing them if they if they do something on the margins. What separates the United States from other nations, other advanced nations, is that we don't have any national regulation of any meaning uh, to speak of to regulate retail gun sales. And that's really what we're fighting about, though. You would never nobody's ever thought to think of it that way because of the blinders, because what can happen now is I can drive to West Virginia and buy $8,000 worth of weapons, pay uh, a local resident a few thousand dollars to buy them for me, and then drive to, a, to Detroit or Chicago or, or another city and then sell them on the black market. Not for that much of a markup because it's so easy to do. A lot of people do it. And this is what's fueling uh, uh, crime guns, as the, as the ATF calls them, when they, when they confiscate them. That's what's fueling. That's why a lot of the statistics put out by NRA paid scholars are totally misleading because they're looking at apples and oranges. Yeah, you know, gun laws are, are, are restricted in one place, but they're not strict somewhere else. When you have uh, open borders, it doesn't work. And that's why I would like to see more research on, on gun control and, and, and gun violence or the lack thereof in other advanced nations, because that would be a real comparison. Every time we have one of these tragic mass shootings, there's a cry, an outcry for uh, action. And every time we see people in Congress sort of backpedaling and saying, you know, yes, we should do something, but then in fact they don't. Uh, what is the tipping point that will um, make the difference? Well, I hope the tipping point is not another horrific tragedy or a series of horrific tragedies. And I'm afraid that uh, that may be the road we're headed down. I'm hoping 
that more information and challenging the NRA and the gun rights uh, extremists on their myths could help precipitate that tipping point. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're at the tipping point. We're closer, right? The, the gun reform movement is closer than they've ever been, but the nation is not yet at the tipping point. But I'm not sure what that would be uh, except for the gun reform movement to get stronger over time. And your predictions as we close here on the um, both the, the uh, bankruptcy case in uh, New York State, and now the uh, the case that's just been opened up in Texas? I think the, uh, the NRA is going to get clobbered in New York State. If it doesn't seek to dissolve them, they're going to end up dissolving themselves. And they're going to just try and fight it out to preserve as many as much of their assets in Virginia as they can. But their attempt to move to Texas is going to take a while. But I think they will eventually reincorporate under a new federal tax ID so they could change the name they could do they could, they could, they could, it would be still be the NRA, but it also would have different bylaws. So it'd really be a big deal. And I think that uh, the bankruptcy proceeding is not, is going to be at least frozen until the New York attorney general lawsuit uh, is concluded. And we're also seeing there was division in the board of the NRA and then they sealed ranks. And now it seems like the division is starting to creep out again with this ex board member quoting uh, other board members unnamed. Uh, in his filing, asking for an independent examiner. And the NRA is also spending tens of millions of dollars, you know, Rudy Giuliani-type legal fees on their lawyers, right, to be able to defend themselves in three arenas. And then that's not sustainable in the long run either, right? So they're going down, but their ideology will remain. That was Frank Smythe, the NRA Unmasked. He spoke on February 14th at an online event moderated by Norm Stockwell of The Progressive magazine. Frank Smythe is an award-winning independent journalist and the author of The NRA, The Unauthorized History. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of this program, Frank Smythe, the NRA Unmasked, and our special book offer, the Howard Zinn Classic, A People's History of the United States, just give us a call at one 800 Triple four one nine seven seven. We're offering free of charge MP3s, PDFs, and printed transcripts of this program. Just call us at one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.
Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Warning, the following program may have a few swear words. Listener discretion is advised. That track was called Notice by Made on Mars, a brand new single from the show Local Singles, which is what you're currently listening to. 
as the time is 12.01 in the booth, which means it is time for Local Singles, the radio show that brings you the best of Calgary in a whole bunch of different genres. Before we get started today, I do want to say you are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting out of Calgary, Alberta, at the University of Calgary Campus and Community Radio Station, uh, which is located on Treaty 7 land. I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region, Southern Alberta, uh, or sorry, in Southern Alberta. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation... Of- 